This is Proxilla Radio, the UK's first dedicated progressive rock music radio network. You're listening to Tabletop Genesis, a podcast by Genesis fans for Genesis fans. Hello, everyone. This is Mike Lord. Oh, hello. This is Simon. (laughs) This is Stacy. (laughs) This is Tom. And you're listening to Tabletop Genesis. Thank you all for being here today. We have a very special thing for you today. It's our interview with Tony Banks. Uh, He's our very special thing. Yes. Yes, I'm very articulate today. So (laughs) we just had some sugar, so we're all a little bit wired. Um, But yes, I want to thank, right at the top of the episode, I want to thank Joe Greenwood with Tony Smith Personal Management for setting this up for us. I was doing a vacation over in London and was able to set this up and talked with Tony out at the farm studios where a lot of Genesis history happened. And we talked mainly about his solo career. I really, really wanted to focus on that, much like we did with Ant Phillips the year before. And of course, Genesis comes up as part of that conversation, but... Be prepared to hear a lot about Tony's solo career and solo albums, which you may not know much even if you own the records. So yes, so we will now jump into the interview with Mr. Tony Banks. there this is Mike Lord and we're at the farm studios talking to Tony Banks good good day (laughs) good day good morning whatever time we whenever you're listening to this so um, Tony thank you for coming out here we really appreciate it Um, I wanted to talk about um, your career in music and your solo career specifically in the classical albums you've been doing most recently but to start off things, what's your earliest musical memory of from your childhood? Is there something that you recall that kind of really sparked your interest in music back in the day? Well, music was, was very much a part of my um, you know, childhood. My mother was very musical. She used to play the piano all the time. And um, I suppose that it's different from what the, the earliest ones were. I remember we had, you know, everything in those days was on 78s, you know. Sure. So going back a bit in time here. And so, you know, there was, you had a version of, say, um, and we had Rachmaninoff's, I think, second piano concerto mm-hmm. was on, but it was on 24 records, you know. So you never really got through the whole thing, however hard you tried. Right. And there was a, a version of Ravel's Bolero that was just um, two sides of a 78, which I used to love, you know. So it was a compact version of, of Bolero, which is, of course, misses half the point of Bolero, in fact. But So those sort of things, a lot of show tunes, you know, uh, particularly with Rodgers and Hammerstein, okay. which I've always loved, and, and uh, that was much part of my, you know, childhood. Sure. So the classical music was really kind of the start of your musical life, and now you've been doing the past three albums that you've put out have been all orchestral classical albums. Mm. What 
Can you describe the writing process for your orchestral albums? Well, the process isn't that dissimilar from what I did do, uh, did for the other albums and everything. It's just that you, you you're less conscious of trying to make a shape. Um, you know, you're not trying to sort of get verses and choruses and stuff. You know, mm. so. You, you, you avoid repetition. It's not almost not a conscious thing. You just let things develop more. Um, and I like when I come back to things to sort of do variations and to re not to repeat identically what I've done before and stuff. And obviously length is a thing. I mean, I, I, if Genesis did long songs, I think mm -hmm. probably that was more me than anyone else. So I, sure. I love things that ramble, ramble around the place. And, you know, when we did things like Up Was Ready or Musical Box or whatever, which went through a series of changes, um, I always said, and I think it's absolutely right, that that each bit sounds better because of its contrast with mm. the previous bit. So sure. you have a loud bit against a soft bit and all that. Mm. And I, I like doing that with, with music. And, uh, you know, and I, I've, I've always loved classical music. I, I was finding uh, the rock albums were getting a little bit, um, you know, wasn't commercially, they weren't very successful. And I was happy, very happy with them as, as pieces of music. And I, I, you know, almost did it as a sort of final thing. I thought back right. in 2000, I thought, that, um, you know, I, uh, is this it? Because that's calling all stations thing, I've done okay, but not brilliantly. Um, and I thought, well, perhaps it's time, you know, 50, time to retire and do something else, you know. Um, and I thought, but I'd always wanted to do um, an album of orchestral music ever since I'd done The Wicked Lady with Michael Winner, mm -hmm. uh, where I'd, a fairly simple theme had been transformed to something much greater, mm -hmm. you know, working with an arranger in that case, definitely, who did added a lot to it, I think. And so, you know, doing Seven, which was the first of these orchestral albums, was very much, a, um, you know, just seeing how it would work. Right. And I wasn't sure. I had a few bits around that I thought could, you know, could work in that format, but I wasn't totally sure. And I just started writing, and the piece I wrote that really convinced me was the piece that ended up on the record called Black mm -hmm. Down, which I just wrote on a string synthesizer, you know, just, just playing it. It's pretty, I and mean, obviously we've embellished it a bit since, but, you know, the first two or three minutes is pretty much exactly what I played. You know, that made me think this is worth doing because that's that's good. That's to me is genuinely in the orchestral world. It's not right. like trying to take a piece of, you know, rock or middle of the road music and trying to make it classical. This was actually genuine classical music. So right. that set me off and then mm -hmm. built the rest of the album around it. And and it was the sort of first time since 
a curious feeling, I suppose, that I'd had any kind of real response back from from an audience uh, that sure. was positive. Well, that's always a good thing to have. I like positive response. response. I'm exactly. Very, I'm very fickle, very shallow. You respond positively to positive response. You sound great. I think it is. <laughs> I've enjoyed each of the classical albums, and I think mm. I've enjoyed the new each of them more than the last. Right. Uh, because in some ways, I feel like that the the writing on seven and then six and five begins to sound more like you. It sounds more like some of your personality is coming through the music. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think it's very much there in all of them, particularly, obviously, sure. uh, I think on Seven was very much me. Six, obviously, working with Paul Lindishby is a, is a fantastic musician himself. Perhaps some of his interpretations took it slightly further away from the demos than I might have wanted, you know, whereas Seven, some of it was quite close. Mm -hmm. um, but on this one, th th that was a reason for doing this final one the way I have. Um, where I kind of use my demos very much as a template, and right. I said all this on the, on the liner notes for anyone who knows me. But mm -hmm. um, I kind of uh, I wanted to try and get what I saw as close as possible, my original vision, and do it. You know, and working with Nick Ingram, who kind of um, really saw that as well, and was able to, you know, to help me and embellish and add, but nevertheless stick very much to the structure mm -hmm. I had. Um, we use my original demos as the template right. my piano part was stayed right through the one mm. I originally wrote, did and um, a lot of all, just about all the parts I did are there um, and then there's you know little bits of weaving in and out and doing extra mm. stuff and fiddling about a bit to make it work particularly on the percussion area which I was a bit lazy with you know so for me I mean I actually think that I also thought my writing was probably almost best on, on the final one as well, you know, so mm -hmm. particularly the opening piece, Prelude to a Million Years. It's, uh, which I wrote originally for a music festival over here in England, yeah. which, you know, was performed there and was a bit iffy. It was all right, some parts were right. So I kind of revisited it and fiddled around a bit. And, um, and I really thought that was a really strong piece of music to me, you know. And then the other pieces, you know, again, I, I felt very positive about them. And I said, I love Black Down from Seven. It's, right. it's kind of has a special place in my heart. That. Sure. But other than that, I think, I feel virtually all of this record has better better pieces on it than the others. Um, 
it's you know it's it's one of those things I mean also I think you probably get better at it I suppose you get more used to understand a little bit more what orchestral instruments can do um, but it's you are a bit dependent on arrangers obviously have some effect on the character you know and I mm-hmm. felt that Nick was very good at kind of subliminating some is that the right word? I don't know, his, his character <laughs> sure. to mine in this, and you're nevertheless doing a fantastic job. Right. They almost have to be invisible, but in some ways, the arranger's going to have a stamp on the material. Yeah, they are. But... And I think with Paul, he did, he had more of a stamp. And although I liked very much what he did, he particularly affected um, the two solo pieces. You know, the, hmm. uh, the Siren and Blade, the two right. the two solo pieces. And I think what he did was fantastic. You know, um, and particularly improved. I think the Siren. Mm-hmm. Blade is kind of different, a little bit different. What I had originally, and what I had was actually even faster, and a bit more, a bit more rhythmic, perhaps okay. a little more consistent with the rhythms. But the, the other pieces, they were more, pretty much like I mm-hmm. intended them to be. So I wasn't so worried about that. But it's, um, you know, it, it's one of those things. Really, I, I sort of, um, I just thought perhaps if I was going to try and do it the way I was talking about, that, that someone like Nick, who's very experienced working with, uh, he's worked a lot in pop music and done arrangers arrangements and is also very used to this idea of recording things piecemeal because I did this very much with the chord of the strings and then right, the brass right. and chord of the flute and like so, uh, rather than recording the whole orchestra in one which mm-hmm. well you don't have a chance to scrutinise you very much have to do it hope to get a good performance and see what happens right. did you get pushback from the orchestra orchestral world about recording things separately because again that's not the norm generally yeah. so was that something that you had to convince I don't have to convince the orchestra because the orchestra we use one in Prague they do a lot of work with um, in film and stuff and so they're very used to doing this kind of thing and Nick obviously has done a lot of work like this Uh, I think the people have to who I was very up and front and honest about this Mm -hmm. Um, when I did the obviously I said on the limelights and everything Mm -hmm. and I think some of the people in the classical world of course don't like this at all Mm -hmm. they don't really like what I do anyhow from the point of view that I mainly because it's recording before it's a performance sure. and the, the, the classical world is very much you perform the thing mm-hmm. and then you record it and um, there's always a prejudice against people from rock and roll doing doing classical music it doesn't matter what I want in a classical world and I call it orchestral because it's not classical sure um, so it, it falls into this terrible sort of what they call crossover mm. and I don't think it's any more crossover than, than some parts of Will Williams or something really but it's just that people want a category for right. it and so that's where it ends up right it's easy to People want to put music into a box. Well, and that's right, you know. If it's... Well, we struggled with this a bit as Genesis over the years, and I was quite sure, when, particularly when we sort of did what you might call slightly more um, accessible things, you know, suddenly we're a pop group, not a rock group, you know. I, um, and when we got nominated for various Grammys, I think it was at the time of probably We Can't Dance or something, we were, everything was a pop-the-pop thing. <laughs> right. And I thought, well, the trouble is we have one or two pop songs, but we also have our strength in many ways. There's always been those more ambitious pieces. I mean, I know we've had hits with things, I'm very sure. proud of things like Land of Confusion and everything, but, you know, the things like Tonight, Tonight or whatever, or Driving the Last Spike, are kind of not, they're, they're much more involved. You know? Right. Those um, aren't the radio tracks that get played. They're not played the radio tracks, the ones that get played, and, that, and therefore when you, the album is therefore considered a different way, and you know, you find you're competing with Beyonce rather than you too, and that's sort of, you know, we're, we're never going to win that fight. <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure. So can you talk through the five tracks on five at this point? Yeah. With, uh, because it starts out, as you said, with Prelude to a Million Years, which, as a listener, for me, it's interesting because it's about a 15-minute track, mm. and it's the themes are very similar, and so I really had to listen closely to kind of 
figure out what was happening in the track. And also, I'm not as familiar with listening to orchestral music as I am to uh, more kind of the rock world or even some jazz in there. Yeah. So it's an interesting listening experience as an audience member to say, oh, what am I listening for here? Well, you've got really two, two major sort of aspects to it. One is the, the, what is the opening uh, part, which occurs in the middle and at the end sort of as well, mm -hmm. which is sort of slow um, theme, which I suppose recalls Watch of the Skies, all that kind of stuff, you know, a bit. Um, like just chords that move and sort of mm. hopefully move you, you know, in a way, and, and then set it up. And then the sort of second part, which is sort of all the arpeggio sort of parts, mm. um, where I kind of have a, a sort of three, you know, a theme suggested a lot of times um, and then I do it it's kind of what you might call it's proper form mm -hmm. in the middle and then twice at the end you know I right. suppose which is sort of a uh, fairly traditional format in a way but it's um, I, I don't know I just kind of was trying to sort of I, what I wanted with with, to, with this piece in many ways was what I tried to do on the final piece on six which was mm -hmm. to kind of have I wanted the arpeggios to keep on going, mm -hmm. so that you know. I originally called this piece arpeggio, or arpeggio okay. at least, because I wanted to try and make certain that everyone knew that that's what I was trying to do. Um, that to keep the arpeggio going all the way through, and it's sort of there mm -hmm. in the background, doing something that's either played by the piano, or it's played by the harp, or played by the flutes and stuff, you know. Yeah, that, that, that was the sort of idea. I love the sort of motion that has, you know, mm -hmm. which perhaps is not a terribly classical thing. It's sort of like more filmic, I suppose. You think of John Barry and people like that mm -hmm. who tend to do a lot of that kind of stuff. Um, but I kind of wanted that, and that's why I called it that. So I want to make certain that when originally we started the arrangements, originally possibly with Paul, I wanted him to know that's what I was trying for. And, sure. And, uh, and then obviously when I changed to, to, to use it with Nick, it was more obvious what I was doing, use the part. So it's a kind of... I hope it's sort of uplifting. I mean, I just think the theme... Is, is very, you know, I think the main theme is very strong. I think the introduction is very strong. Mm -hmm. And then, um, I think it's 15 minutes long, which means, that, of course, no radio station will ever play it. <laughs> this is the big problem. <laughs> sure, have. right. And I think even Spotify and people have trouble with big tracks. You know, there's always this question of how it, how how they do these things. So, you know, no one hears it unless they buy the record, which is right. unfortunate. But um, right. you know, that's I'm proud of it. So right. And Reveille is has the is it the cornet that takes the lead melody? Yeah, the cornet. Well, I did it as a, um, that was what I had on the demo. It was many ways, mm. I've written this sort of, you know, fast sort of piano thing where I'd cross my hands, which I've done many times <laughs> over the years with, from the Lamlas on onwards, you know. Um, and it sets up quite a nice rhythmic feel, which I was like. And I just was sort of bluesing around on top with sounds that I had on my computer. And one sound I had, which was very nice, was this was cornet sound. And mm -hmm. I found it gave us a real bounce and a sort of could play kind of cornet type lines. Mm -hmm. And I felt it sounded interesting.
had sort of two in that you've got two related themes you've got the fast theme and then the, the slower theme which has got a re- related melody mm-hmm. but done as a sort of very kind of more you know perhaps slightly more traditional Tony Banks kind of soft soft piece really you know it's one of those pieces I mean I think that's uh, it's in many ways my least favourite of the five oh, I have okay. to say although it's the only one that ever got any ratio <laughs> because it's short I think shorter um, I think it's and I just still like it I'm like I like you know I tend to be I do enjoy it, but it's just, it, it was good as a contrast after the sort of slow, you know, feel of the first one. You just right. only have this sort of faster, more exciting piece, really. And I think it's, uh, yeah, no, I'm, you know, I'm pretty happy with it. But it's one that I thought would translate to kind of a rock arrangement. Well, you could do it with the, the, you could do the drums, yeah. You, yeah could do, you could do the whole thing. You could do that. I think that's, you said before, perhaps was coming closer to Tony Banks somehow, this particular album. I think, I, I do think it has sort of more prog elements in it, perhaps, mm. than than some of the other ones did, you know. Because, perhaps because I did it with my demos and therefore, you, although I, I use clicks, but, you know, very mm-hmm. variable clicks, to be honest, but it does nevertheless tie it. Mm-hmm. And this one particular one has quite a, a strong tempo thing in it. So you could imagine drummers, drummers playing along with it and everything would sure. be, would sound great. Right. Anyone wants to do it, they're welcome. Mm. <laughs> right. So then we've got, come to Ebb and Flow, the fifth track, which... Um, third. Third. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, I have five Sorry. on the brain here. Don't be worried. So, yes. worried you're all five on the brain. It's good, you know. <laughs> yeah, well, um, this was actually when I did the original um, piece, the first piece, the prelude for, mm. wrote it for the music festival. I had this other piece, sort of bits and pieces on the go as well, which is Ebb and Flow, and I wasn't mm-hmm. sure which I was going to do for um, for it. This, is, again, really is, involves two separate kind of ideas. One which is... Um, just hinted at the beginning and that's embellished as you go through the, the piece until the final final minute or two where it's actually played in its entirety. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, sort of slow and quite sort of epic sort of theme. And then a sort of faster, more breezy piece that's in the middle which has um, sort of sax okay. soloing on top of it, which is Martin Robertson, who's the same chap mm-hmm. who played the sax on the previous, on seven, on six at least. <laughs> and, uh, you know, t- again, it's just where it, where it takes you. You sort of fit around, you do ideas, had a sort of quite a nice way of playing the piano where the two plots were playing very much in the same register. And that sort of led to ideas. And again, just playing around on top with the melody line, uh, improvising, if you like, uh, p- to produce the sax lines. Uh, I, I sort of, that's in a sense how I used to do a lot of the Genesis things when I was doing things like Cinema Show or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, you'd, you'd just have a, a backing and then you'd kind of just improvise on top and see what happened and then try and arrange the improvisation so that they, they made sense. And that's a bit like what I was doing on this one, I suppose. Right, find what works and kind of move yeah, forward Yeah, so some things work and you're trying to sort of get, perhaps elaborate a little bit on, on the basic melody each time and go a little bit further with it. Um, and as I said, but the other theme was more a sort of stricter, more straightforward kind of melody which sort of you know finally has a couple of chords in the final rendition which should kind of make you feel it's all worthwhile
So with Autumn Sonata, the fourth track mm-hmm. is um, you mentioned yes, and you mentioned in the liner notes that it's based upon has kind of an older piece that never found a home for it in other material. Where, how old was that? Oh, it's not piece? that old, really. It was only again about three or four years. Okay. Ago. it wasn't a very old piece. Okay. It was just. I called it new and old because uh, when it was working title, which sure. would be unimaginative. But um, I had this sort of stuff which end, which starts and which is in the middle really starts with a little flute phrase and then goes mm-hmm. into the uh, into the another cornet part really, mm-hmm. and then a quite a rhythmic thing that's almost is a sort of uses a very sort of standard kind of uh, note pattern from rock music almost you know sure. it's almost like a twelve bar sort of start you know mm-hmm. anything and. I just sort of like that in the context of, of classical and using all the classical percussion right. rimbas and um, glockenspiel and stuff, you know, to get a certain kind of effect. The early part and the later part, which I wrote later on, I just had an idea. I wanted to try and write a melody just on two chords, and I almost managed it. Um, and I actually introduced a third chord. And then when I played it, did a rendition, a second rendition, I couldn't stop myself mm-hmm. embellishing it with all sorts of other chords and stuff, you know. I can't stop myself. It's that kind of... <laughs> It's, well, that's what uh, people just, listen to your music. Well, I know they do, but I, I just wanted to see. I could I, two chords because I remember that the one I did, the Wicked Lady, was two or three chords, and I thought it really um, worked mm. well. You know. Yes. Yeah. So it's sort of keeping kind of simple, um, simple melody, and then of course it what ended up as the end of the middle part also ends up as the end of the piece as well in mm. a way, sort of like which is much more dramatic, but again, kind of. Not, you know, whereas it's just like arpeggio, the first one probably uses lots of kind of slightly strange chord sequences and everything. This is kind of a fairly standard descending bass line chord sequence, but kind of epic thing and just with, with everything going nuts on top, which I quite enjoyed sort of having right. the strings up, you know, arpeggiating like mad and the brass trumpet just trying to sort of play above the whole thing. You know? right. And, uh, you know, so it was a kind of, you know, trying to keep the whole thing a little bit more kind of within much more conventional harmony and everything rather than sort of faffing around like I normally do. And with the final track, Renaissance, again, you mentioned in the liner notes that it might kind of harken back to your mm. your prior past in progressive rock. 
And it's it's interesting because I actually thought one or one or two of the other tracks sounded more like that world than the final one. Just again, as a listener, I thought it was interesting. Yeah, well, that so, may be the way. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I was talking about sort of avoiding unconventional harmony a bit in the mm. previous one. Obviously, in this one, I, I I go the other way and I use a lot of kind of slightly stranger changes mm. and everything. Um, the reason I started off, I had to, you know, a piece when I was back in the days when I was trying to write in the film world mm-hmm. back in the late nineties. I did lots of demos and bits and pieces and things. So there's a little piece I had mm-hmm. that, in fact, I don't think anyone ever was never sort of thought of. Even I don't think I ever gave it to anyone or anything. But and I just were playing some old tapes, seeing if anything inspired. And I had this little. That's that's really interesting. Sort of little little kind of um, a line on top of these, you know, um, bass note line, and then this chord coming in, and then this little very simple melody afterwards. And I thought that's a great start point. Mm-hmm. So I kind of used that and then sort of saw where it led me. And um, it's kind of, I, I sort of think it's, the reason I think it's more prog than anything, I'm particularly the final sequence when I actually have a sort of a, a one second silence in this, which is unusual for me. I don't have enough silence as I know that, Keep everything goes on. Uh, and then comes in with what was a, pretty much a piano led piece mm-hmm. you know, to start with anyhow, um, which could have been, a, that could have been a piece of rock mm-hmm. music, definitely. Right. Uh, but it's kind of like a, I think it's, for me it's a really strong, from one of the strongest melodies I've ever written I feel, you know, I really mm-hmm. love it. And um, it's sort of like very much kind of going off into the sunset, you know, optimistic right. thing. So that was why it was the end piece. I mean, it have to be said that the, the final piece is my favourite of them all really. Okay. Um, uh, and it's just, it's a little bit, it's more unusual, it's more, uh, that's the reason it's more Tony Banks, the starting point is a bit more Hark's curious feeling sort of type, feeling slightly mm-hmm. and everything, and then the second half is more more sort of in the rock idiom where I've kind of been. But still, still, I think works as a classical piece, you know, and kind of um, sort of let the chords take me a little bit where they would. pleased with the, the record. I still, I still like it. Sometimes when you come back to these things, you think, oh, I don't know, I'm not sure, you know. You go to on and off things right. over the years, you know, and you think. But this one I'm, I still like, and it's, I mean, it's, it's a long time since I recorded it now, because, sure. you know, we finished it, um, you know, it's about a year and a half since I finished it. So it feels almost in the rearview mirror. Yeah, I mean, I can judge it now a little bit more sort of uh, mm-hmm. thing. It's also it did what it was going to do in terms of sales and charts, I suppose. So you then have a chance to sort of review a little bit. What do you think mm-hmm. of this, you know? Um, you know, because I've often been frustrated in the past where I feel I've done something really good, like I did, I thought I did Still, for example, and right. had a chance of being a hit. And of course, it nothing, <laughs> no, it wasn't. Um, and you get frustrated and you listen back to it and think, well, there's, it's, there's a, you then start to doubt some pieces more than you might do if it had been a, you know, a big hit. <laughs> right, it's easier to... If people if buy it in large numbers, it's easier to say, oh, yeah, that was good. Well, but that's I, right. I mean, you know, and yet, yeah, I mean, I felt the same about many Genesis albums, whereas some mm-hmm. bits, I think, you know. Um, so I can review dispassionately, I think. So, so I think there's some good moments and bad moments on everything one does. It's mm-hmm. bound to be, you know. 
um, and it doesn't necessarily relate to to sort of sales or, or, or anything else. I mean, mm-hmm. we, we all know that it's so much a matter of visibility. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, people will say this from everybody who's ever recorded or made, written a piece of music in their lives know that they say if only people could hear it, right. they'd love it. Right. And that's, if you don't think that, yes. there's no point in doing it in the first place. So right. I think that just as much as anybody else does, you know. Um, and the guy in his bedroom, I'm sure, is thinking exactly the same thing when he puts something down <laughs> on tape and thinks, this is fantastic, I just wish people could hear it. And he may well be right, you know. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of dross in the, top, in the pop charts. And it, you, a lot of it gets through where it is because of the personalities of the people involved and, and the interest people will have in, in those as artists. You know, you, mm-hmm. you hear a very mediocre piece of music but done by someone who's a name. Right. And it's a sale because mm-hmm. people like, like the person. They like to, to hear them sing something even if it's not that great. Mm-hmm. I know as, as a listener for myself, you know, I, my entryway into your music was through Genesis. Mm-hmm. And as a completist, <laughs> as I am kind of a... Well, we love people like you. Yes, well, well I, I, and for a while in the U.S., it was very hard to find some of your solo albums. Definitely. It's quite hard uh, over here, too. Yes. <laughs> but, it was, uh, it, but it was, I think, when I found A Curious Feeling in The Fugitive. Mm-hmm. I mean, were the two out when I was getting into this in the mid to late 80s. And those albums, to me, I was like, there's really good stuff on here. Mm-hmm. I really enjoyed both of those. Mm-hmm. And can you talk a bit about... I mean, segueing out of the classical world and back into those rock albums, kind of how those two kind of, you know, started your solo career. Well, a curious feeling was the period I had a sort of I was writing a lot of stuff in the late seventies, you know, and um, obviously a lot of ended up on Trespass, mm-hmm. not Trespass, <laughs> Trek of the Tail, <laughs> Way and, back, and yes. Wind and Wuthering in particular, mm-hmm. and. Um, you know, and I kind of, and I'm not then there were three, actually, those three albums, I suppose, a lot of stuff. And I just mm-hmm. had a load of stuff. And I, but I had this idea. I had this piece that was originally written as an introduction to the song Undertow, which, you know, it didn't get used because the, the, the other boys thought that I had quite enough introductions going, mm-hmm. cul-de-sac and all the rest of it. And so I, I sort of shelled it in a way. And then when I was asked to do, Mike and I were asked to do the, the, the theme to... Um, the film called The Shout. Mm-hmm. Um, I sort of resurrected this bit, but I completely transformed it in the sense what was the original big bit, the main bit. I made it just what played once in the middle and used what was a kind of just a spooky kind of um, interlude, if you like, between two bits and made that the main part because uh, I thought it had a sort of atmosphere that was kind of made you feel slightly uneasy and would work well with the film. And so I, I did that and I thought that the piece of music worked really well. It wasn't used that well in the film, I don't think mm, it could sure. have been used better. It was a bit kind of got drowned out by wind noise and stuff, which <laughs> irritated me a lot. But um, it's, you know, so I thought this piece is good. I want to use, I thought it was a great starting point mm-hmm. for an idea. And I, I, for me, A Curious Feeling is the most, it's one of my favourite things I've ever sure. done as a writer. I mean, mm-hmm. obviously playing-wise, we've done far better things just because <laughs> of the players involved and everything. But it's... Um, I was really pleased with the, particularly the musical side of it. I mean, things, you know, like the Waters of Lethe, I thought was just mm-hmm. a lovely piece of music, which I think could, again, could work orchestrally if you wanted to. Um, and I just thought the idea, although I originally wrote it based around the story Flowers for Algernon, which is an old, as a favourite science fiction story sure. of mine, um, where it has the sort of same sort of cycle as I did. I won't bother to go into the Flowers for Algernon plot, but with, I had to get something which did the same thing where a, a person would start off one way and end up um, having becoming something completely different and then mm-hmm. at the end ending up being how he was at the beginning if you like um, and that because I thought it was a sort of a tragedy 
or aspect of it I love and I thought my music always lends itself to, to being sad a bit <laughs> with a happy tinge yes. of sort of nostalgia and everything so I enjoyed that very much I mean some of the lyrics ended up being a little bit wordy for that mm-hmm. trying to do that I think the original Flowers for Algernon was actually easier to write but some of the pieces kept pretty much the same lyric like the, the song You mm-hmm. um, and for a while I was going to bring up You because mm-hmm. that's one of my favorite tracks on the album and I think it kind of proves wrong the myth that you all couldn't write love lyrics in some ways. <laughs> well, I see, it was a funny old thing really because, you know, when we, we, in the early days we were all, we came out of what we call public schools here which are very sure. repressed kind of institutions <laughs> and we couldn't, none of us could write about relationships at all so we wrote about Roman myths and, and all the rest of it which was fun. I mean, you know, to write stories was great so not write about love was quite good. And then when um, we got to And Then There Were Three I think we were sort of trying to get a little bit more kind of confident in terms of being able to actually write about real things. And so I wrote the song Many Too Many, which was about mm-hmm. love gone wrong, if you like, which I found easier to write than love gone right. <laughs> Mike was in a very romantic mood, so he wrote the lyrics to Follow You, Follow Me, right. uh, which obviously was a group song, but he and it has a very straightforward, positive sort of mm-hmm. view on, on love. And I suppose that kind of opened the floodgates a bit, really. And I mean, I've written a lot of songs relating to... Uh, to you know, to relationships since then, I suppose normally going wrong, but you was one where it sort of where where where, where it was good. How strange! I never known it. Your eyes are the color of your hair. It seems to me. We kind of knew it was going to go wrong. You see, right. that's the point. So that's it was going wrong worked. in the future. In the future, in that's right. So, and it's a great keyboard solo in it. Yeah, also, well, that was fun so to that's... do. Actually, all I did was I just set up a sort of basis as if like Mike was playing a mm-hmm. rhythm part, and I just a couple of nice chords and all the rest of it, and then just improvised on top to see what would happen really a bit. cinema show you know a lot of Mike would sort of had originally started off with sort of like a, a chord, mm-hmm. chord thing and then 
I played on top of it and then tried to take the chord somewhere else. But he had two basic chord sequences on that 7-8 rhythm, you know, which kind of I was able to use as a sort of a great starting point. And I wanted to get a similar kind of thing going on this. So it's a bit genesis really, in a way, that, that final part. But I thought it was, you know, I was quite pleased with the solo. Talking about lyrics a bit, you know, obviously being a piano player, keyboardist, that's kind of your main tool for writing. But when did you start writing lyrics? Well, we did write at the beginning, really. I think it was just a matter of, um, you know, I wasn't too sure I wanted to write lyrics, but mm. I found I did. I sort of, even on Genesis Revelation, you know, one or two, I tended to write a little... Which one's on there, do you remember? Well, I wrote... The, well, the, the, the Fireside song, I suppose, you know, was mm. more me and... And there was... Uh, and used okay. to be quite involved with all these things. There was a song that didn't end up in there called The Shepherd, mm -hmm. which uh, was me and Ant, really. Mm -hmm. Ant was always a bit more kind of... Um, in the world of fairies, if you're, I mean, <laughs> sure. you know, he was a great know, yeah. but he was yeah. more fond of fairies than me, so a bit of that crept in there. But um, I'm trying to think what other ones. So I mean, we did, you know, Peter probably from that stage was writing more of the lyrics, I suppose. I don't know. He had to sing the bloody things for a start, <laughs> you know. And I mean, um, and some things you just we kind of collaborative things a little bit, you know. You sort of um, mm -hmm. people came up with different ideas on on the on the songs. Um, I think when he came to sort of trespass, we just, it's kind of sharing the workload a bit, really. We all kind of wanted to contribute, you know. Right. And in particular, he would like to write lyrics. Mm -hmm. So, you know, he wrote things, obviously, the lyric to Visions of Angels and stuff like that. Um, I think Peter, from the outset, was the best lyric writer, really wrote the lyrics to The Knife and, mm -hmm. and also to Stagnation, which I thought was a good lyric, you know. So um, I was happy, you know, I mean, I wanted to, the music was what I was really keen on, but I wanted to, you know, I would like to keep my hand sure. in the writing lyrics. And, and was there com competitiveness sort of, there also? No, no, really the lyrics, more... I think the reason why okay. we contribute, we always um, said everybody wrote everything was because we didn't want to get that kind of thing. Sure. Because, so you know, whatever people may say, you know, I know if you've got the sort of um, the idea that sort of, uh, you know, lyrics and music always share equal billing, mm -hmm. but... I mean, that may be sometimes the case, but mm -hmm. I don't think the Genesis music was like that, really. I think yeah. the, the lyrics were sometimes are very important, but a lot of the time we're mm -hmm. just the, the instrument of the singer. Right. Um, and the, the music was just as important. So you kind of wanted to sort of get away from that thing that you'd 50-50 all the time on that mm -hmm. basis. Yeah. And, you know, as when the, on the next two albums, you know, up to uh, things like Foxtrot and and all that, um, we were all writing lyrics, you know, fairly much around the thing. I think... Mm -hmm. You know, I wrote the lyrics to things like, well, with Mike, um, to Cinema Show and mm -hmm. The Fifth, for example, you know. Um, I think Peter always found it more difficult singing other people's lyrics, which is fair enough, I understand right. that. So Singers to, tend to say that in general. Yeah, they do. And when yeah. he came to Land Lines Island Broadway, he kind of wanted to write all the lyrics, mm -hmm. and he pretty much did, apart from a track or two. Sure. Um, which I think that did become a slight bone of contention, because it meant it had only had one character. Although I think the lyrics to um, uh, Lamb are really good, you know. Mm -hmm. I think the album itself is, it doesn't, to me, totally work as a, as a total attitude. I don't think that's necessarily the lyrics, but I think it's the fact that the approach we took on it a little bit. Mm -hmm. And although I think the first two sides are fantastic and the great moments are throughout, I don't think it as a four-sided four thing that it works quite as well, perhaps because the last track or two are not really the strongest tracks, which you, you needed something really powerful there. And I think that does stem a little bit from having this one character mm -hmm. throughout, really. I understood why we did it, and it, we worked on on a basis. And I would have been quite happy to have done, to have carried on working with Peter and stuff because sure. it was great. But it was uh, just you know it didn't matter in a way when he left. He did open it up a little bit, and then mm -hmm. you know the, the rest of us um, could could then you know take off a little bit more as lyric writers. Right. I think we became better as lyric writers. Sure. All, all four of us actually, um, you know, Phil perhaps 
took until um, face value before he really started writing great lyrics I think but um, you know I think I mean Steve wrote fantastic lyric for um, Blood on the Rooftops for example Mm. you know and these are sort of things we went kind of you know, I think it was kind of interesting to get different characters from yeah. from different people. Sure. Jumping back to, or jumping forward from there to The Fugitive, mm. you decided to sing everything on The Fugitive, well, which I, th- I enjoyed. Yeah. I, I think it's great to hear somebody sing their own lyrics. Well, that's one reason I did it. One thing was, I think after Curious Feeling, there was, and Mike had the exact same problem, so mm-hmm. we went through the same process here. That people didn't really know who, who whose album it was. Right. You know, and they said Tony Banks, you know. And I'm out, I remember getting a, um, a letter from Pete Townsend saying how much he enjoyed my voice. Oh, okay. So, but it wasn't my voice, you see, because oh, the curious right. feeling was going to be. So this was kind yes. of like, you know, um, I thought, so the, this kind of confusion, I thought, well, I'll, I'll, let's have a go. I mean, I can sing, not very sure. well, I can sing. And I'm sure within a studio situation, I can make it so that it works. We didn't have all the tools that later came for the Spice Girls right. and everything. You know, we actually had to do it and then you know drop in and try and get it right. <laughs> but so I did find it was an interesting exercise. What I've been trying to make these guys sing over the years, and I did find I simplified lyrics and melodies quite a bit in order to make them work for me. And I developed a sort of slightly aggressive way of singing mm-hmm. rather than my sort of natural pure tone. Mm-hmm. Which I enjoyed doing. Did it give you sympathy for Phil and oh, Peter retroactively? Has... Particularly Peter. Yeah. Um, Phil's much more adaptable. He could sort of like get himself into the part, you know, mm-hmm. um, and I made him sing sort of things that perhaps he was, he, he was able to, I think, to switch off from the meaning a little bit. Whereas Peter, mm-hmm. I think, it all, tried to always get something out of the thing. And if he couldn't, it was sort of a bit, you know, so you get slightly that session singer mm-hmm. singing, if you like. Um, sometimes or when a person singing a lyric that isn't their own I think yeah. uh, whereas I felt Phil could always manage to get around that and I think he sang you know lyrics of by the rest of us really well always right. actually I think that was find it slightly easier to do that yeah so Fugitive well I kind of I thought it'd be quite fun to try the trouble is that being a singer on a record and trying to promote it and you, then you become the main man mm-hmm. and of course that's totally not me so I kind of did a couple of videos and things, which was a nightmare. But it, you know, it was interesting to do because it's sort of this is love video is a classic. This is love yeah. of the form, I should say. Well, so. In terms of being something people should I, try and avoid. Yeah. Well, let's just say it's a classic and leave <laughs> yeah. it at that. So. It's not my finest hour, but it was kind of fun to you know it taught me again something about what to do. And then it was interesting because when we originally. Uh, the fugitive that we played it around to people and mm-hmm. uh, stiff records over here were interested which were the people who had madness and okay. you know, quite a trendy label at the mm-hmm. time and and you know they were quite excited by the the, the music i think and uh, i went to meet them mm-hmm. i think one meeting with me was quite enough to let them know that this <laughs> was not going to be the new kind of uh, whatever it was at the time right they, they, they decided to drop me <laughs> and uh, i went fortunately you know tony Stratsmith had uh, Charisma Records was, was very happy to pick me up and everything. Okay. But the record, you know, obviously, that we released, um, This Is Love, but then perhaps slightly more success, uh, The Wheels Keep Turning. Mm. The Wheels Keep Turning, we released an edited form of that.
few plays and stuff, but mm-hmm. again, nothing happened. So it was, I found, whereas the was feeling it sort of looked like it was going to do really well and then came in quite well at the charts and then mm-hmm. went down, was a bit disappointing. This one never did anything. And that's, mm-hmm. I was a bit depressed about that. And I thought, well, I won't bother with that again, you know. Right. But you know, as you do, you know, well, I know, you don't want to go through the whole oeuvre, I know, but again, like Mike did Mike and Mechanics, where you managed to take away the emphasis from himself and make it a group right and i tried to do the same with the thing with bank statement of course and that didn't again was not a success but you know mm-hmm. i think in some ways it worked quite well in the sense having the different singers and yeah, everything but some great songs uh, on there so. yeah well i mean i you know I, I think there's good songs all over the place which sure. is why i ended up doing the chord too far right um compilation album i tried mm-hmm. to take what i thought were the best songs from all those records put them in one place so that anyone who was interested who liked genesis and thought well maybe what he's done on his own might be interesting Here's some stuff, you know. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it was a, a trouble of being a sort of all disc set or something. It means that right. puts off quite a few people. Have it right here. It, well, it's interesting because it's, you always try to narrow it down to what is the best or what kind of makes sense with each other. And I was actually very happy that it didn't go chronologically mm. through your career. I liked the kind of mix and matching of putting well, songs to next to, to each just other. Just take all the pieces and to sort of see what would make it. I also wanted to try and put emphasis on tracks that hadn't had the emphasis before. Right. Um, uh, obviously opened it with the you know the, the, the little bit from Quicksilver because mm-hmm. uh, it's just always a, a really good piece of music and uplifting it was just a couple of cents you know and then going into At the Edge of Night which was mm-hmm. a song which perhaps got a bit lost on on, right. on on The Fugitive so you kind of go through this really and and that one too is a great opening for yeah. that for the whole set I yeah, think yeah I, I, was, yeah. I thought it was exciting well, that's good yeah. that's really good you know and uh, it's a good it's, intro to that song. Talking about intros before. Yeah, well, I thought it set it up quite well. Set up the album. And, you yeah. know, it was like, sort of. I think it was always good to set things up with a nice mm-hmm. intro. You know, you can get along. I always felt that with Genesis shows. I've always thought the those first few moments are so important. You know, mm-hmm. and that's why I'm so glad on the last tour when we did opened with a behind the lines oh, introduction. Yes. Mm-hmm. I never thought the song was quite up to the rest of it, but the introduction was always great. Yeah, and that. Flamboyant, big start. Yeah, you know, we're back. Out. We're here. This is so, it. So, that works, I, I yeah. just, it was a fantastic way to start, and I think that can stay with you. It can carry the next three to the next half hour. Yes. Back in the old days, we used to start with Watcher of the Skies, you know, mm-hmm. with the moody Mellotron, Dry Ice, and Pete with the bat wings and, and fluorescent makeup. You know that yeah, everyone thought you were great for at least half an hour before they realised that they actually perhaps the music's not quite as good as they thought. <laughs> so yes. it's it's, a, it's always good to start. So it's all about audience trickery, is what you're telling. Well, me. I think so, yeah, I was very conscious, and I've always been quite a big part of mm-hmm. one of the contributions to Genesis was set yeah. order. Sure. And the one I was always most proud of was the one where we did Supper's Ready towards the end of the set. Mm-hmm. Well, we had to do it twice with things like we ended had the we had I think it was. Um, in the cage going to Afterglow, which was kind of the first mm-hmm. build, then you went down again, and then I think we did Supper's Radio or something, at one stage we did this, and that ended, and you think that's got to be the end, but no, then you did I Know What I Like, and then you did Los Endos. Mm-hmm. And um, it just sort of, to me, that just was kind of multiple yeah. orgasm. You build the, you build the you momentum. Build up, yeah. And you get it going. You know, so often I watch groups, and I think, you know, you haven't thought about the set order yes. yet. I know people want to hear your hit, and so you leave your hit until the encore, you know, and that gets you the encore and all this mm-hmm. but it's, it's not great. I mean, there are some people who do great set sure. orders as well, oh, but definitely. I just sort of felt that was a strong part of Genesis always throughout our career. Right. I thought that... Um, um, I, I enjoyed Bang's statement. I thought Still was a really great... Kind of going back to the well, go, uh, well, going back to using multiple singers, mm. so that each kind of song had a different flavor to it. And I think "Water Out of Wine" is one of the best songs 
mm. on that album. Maybe that you, in my mind, that you've written in your solo career. Yeah, I mean, I rate it very highly too. It's, it's. Uh, I the lyric works well with, mm -hmm. with the music, and I thought she sang it beautifully as well. It's lovely working with with girl singer. Right. Um, you know, I done it with Toya on on right. Line of Symmetry, which was quite fun. You know, it was mm -hmm. a rather ambitious song, and just proved you know what a range of voice she actually had, which had never really appeared on anything else she'd done. You know? because she was a sort of out of the sort of punk world, you know. Sure. I thought she wouldn't want to do it. So yeah, I did, that's great. 
And uh, of course, later on, she ends up going up and marrying Bob Fripp, which is quite <laughs> hilarious, really, because I'd never seen her in sort of in the prog world at all. Mm. But um, but Janie Climack, who I obviously used on on yeah. those uh, those records, she had a very nice voice, very a very a very nice soft voice. The right. only thing about Janie was she was not prepared to. I don't know if we took true with toys to some extent too. They didn't really had no ability to improvise. Okay. You know, you get certain people, obviously Phil, I was so used with Phil and Pete and mm-hmm. everything, we could do whatever you the thing as with Nick Kershaw, you know, mm-hmm. um, would do that. And, um, uh, you know, Jim Davidson, of course, he was, you know, you couldn't stop him, he would just go everywhere, you know. And so I kind of got used to that. And so with these people, you're trying to get them some, you know, just, just do what occurs to you on, 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 on those courts, you know. Right. They, they struggled with that. It wasn't their so, talent. Not there. really, not their talent. But they had, she yeah. had a lovely voice, uh, I think, which worked really well on Mortar Out of Mind, which was done very soft and mm-hmm. breathily, you know. Um, and uh, it was fun working with different singers. I thought it was, uh, you know, Nick Kershaw, was a, I've been a fan of his um, his music, I thought. And uh, particularly I'd liked his album, The Works, which was the one that preceded mm-hmm. what I did. A track on that called Cowboys and Indians, which mm-hmm. is just a great piece of music. It's fantastic. And the marvellous chord changes and chorus you know and fantastic drumming too which is why I went for Vinnie Coluto on that sure on the strength of that his work on, on Nick Kershaw's album obviously he's done lots of other things as well The ability to work with all these different people, that's one of the fun things on solo albums, and they, yeah. I've really enjoyed making them all. I've always really thought they were great when I finished them and then mm. put them out and get very disappointed. So right. you can't each time think, I'm never going to do that again. I'm not going to do that again. No one thinks. Uh, and then yes. I do it, and you know, my wife gives me the look, oh God, you know, yes. here we go again. And you know what's going to happen, really. But do that's you... why Seven was such a surprise, really, because it actually went down pretty yeah. well. Yeah. So do you still write lyrics at all, or is it more you would do that if you had songs that you wanted to do? Well, no. Actually, well, the one thing I have done recently, which probably most people won't know about, is I've worked with, um, I've written three or four pieces for a chap called John Potter who's a sort of classical tenor okay. and um, he uh, what I did was I set some poems to, um, to, to music okay a sort of 16th century chap 17th century maybe and, and also one piece by Shakespeare actually just mm-hmm. on his request he gave me the, the poems the possible and, I, and I, I love doing that sure and it's very easy too and I thought this is what Elton John is why you can hammer them out so quickly you're getting right. a lyric right it's yeah. amazing how quickly you can write a tune so I wrote these pieces they ended up on one of his uh, on uh, piece the lute pieces they're basically done with lute okay um, a lute called two lutes and two singers and stuff and um, I can always forget the title it's some Italian title but if you look for John Potter, and in fact the record did, did, did quite well. Uh, there was pieces on there also. He, he, he quite won for sort of trying to get people from different areas. And mm-hmm. there were pieces there by John Paul Jones okay. and a couple by Sting as well. Mm-hmm. 
and um, he's still got his two or three couple of pieces I've written which he hasn't yet recorded which I think they will do record at some mm-hmm. point but I found that a lot of fun it's just totally different also I love the fact I have no responsibility right. nothing to do with me he sent you know when I heard the versions of them they were quite different to what well a little different to what I'd anticipated mm-hmm. but hey they still sounded good and I thought it's fantastic I don't care you know if Matt <laughs> I don't care sure. you do your arrangement that's wonderful if I ever want to do them myself I could do them my way right. and um, I actually went to see him live um, and that was lovely he sang one of the pieces and it was uh, it sounded really good actually so mm-hmm. it's um, that's an area maybe I could do a bit more of that writing my own lyrics I don't know I mean I just I never quite know really so the one thing in this world of digital mm-hmm. which is a kind of accounts for people uh, you know this idea that Spotify counts as sales you know whatever I mean mm-hmm. this idea that streaming is somehow worth sales is, is, is the trouble is it's not a commitment you don't right. go out and buy a record you know you, you mm-hmm. stream you've got if you've got whatever you've paid your subscription you're going to stream stuff you know it tells you nothing about what people really like I think right. um, not in the way that the old days when you had to part with your hard earned cash to right. buy something so you get these very strange charts you know, and share them with 15 songs or something in the, right. you know I don't which doesn't make any sense really at all I don't think and it doesn't and not that I'm saying he's bad he's good but sure. it's just a matter of uh, it does uh, I think anyhow in this digital world I'm sorry long into trouble <laughs> sure. you could put out one piece right uh, and that appeals to me slightly more, rather than trying to make a sort of rock album or something, yeah. you know, to do a, just to say something on its mm-hmm. own, which you could therefore possibly get some attention to. But it, I don't crave it really. I, I'm, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I never, I don't begrudge. I'd love to have had more success with other records. Don't get sure. me wrong, but I had such fantastic success with Genesis, you know, right. which is far more than anybody dreams of. You know, I'm never gonna. I don't really have any hard feelings about that. Sure. The rest of it. It was disappointing at the time, but I look back on it. I've done this stuff. Mm-hmm. And it was, I loved doing it, and I had the opportunity to do it. There was no way that I could have done sort of eight or nine, how many solo albums I've done, mm-hmm. if I hadn't had the success with Genesis. So right. it's given me that opportunity. And, you know, I do have certain people who, who mm-hmm. like those things. And it is a great body of work. Yeah, there, I'm very happy with so. the body yeah. of work, you know, and I think it's, uh, I think it's a good thing. So that's, I'm happy with that. Sure. What... You know, the obvious question is, is your next uh, orchestral album going to be called Four? But I won't ask that question. I'll just say, what's next? Or do you have I got plans? a feeling. I don't know that I go, I'll do another one or not. I, okay. I really don't know. I've no, I didn't think I'd do, I didn't know I'd do six or five. <laughs> sure. Uh, I talked myself into six because I, when we were doing the last, the tour, Genesis tour, you know, they always ask people what you're doing, and as they said, more mm-hmm. Mike and the Mechanics, you know, and the more so, I'm just mm-hmm. like, what are you doing? I thought, oh, I'll do another classical album, you know. Sure. So I taught myself into it, which I was very happy to do. Um, and I wanted to do the seven, to put something out there that was kind of very close to what's mm-hmm. in my head. Sort of done that now. And, um, you know, and it, uh, nothing, you know, nothing's really led further. Sure. In a way, you know, if it did. Um, then that might, you know, I don't know. Each time I feel I'm starting from ground zero, mm-hmm. which is probably the wrong term, actually. We're starting from base, sure. if you like. Um, so you're not building on anything, really. So it's kind of like, I don't know that I've got the energy to do it or not, really. It, it's, I haven't written anything okay. for about a year, okay. apart from the pieces for John Potter, and I enjoyed mm-hmm. doing that. And the idea of doing a bit more of that sort of quite appeals, but I don't know, really. It's, it's sort of, you know, I've never really been one person to think ahead very much, actually, even back in the old days. I, you know, I never more than a few months ahead if well, that actually sometimes I'm thinking not further than a week ahead right well it means you're open to possibilities of whatever you're always open to possibilities you never know what might happen you know um, but it is I quite enjoyed this sort of thing about the 
solo albums are an incredible responsibility if that comes with a group album you have to take everything on yourself yeah. and if you're not doing anything nothing's happening it's as simple as that so you, you, that is quite exciting and quite entertaining and then when it came to the classical things initially it was just so difficult because I was working in a world that I didn't understand most of the um, musicians in it were prejudiced against me anyhow because of where I came from and mm-hmm. no one had much time for me and stuff so you, you had to get over all that which mm-hmm. I sort of managed to do with the, the next two records um, and you find yourself in a comfortable situation mm-hmm. with people that you do trust and and you know I found again with the, the great thing about the Prague orchestras and I used different orchestras in the two but they're totally different attitude to the British orchestra, just that they, they were open for anything. There were a lot of fans of Genesis in the, sure. in the, in the orchestra, and they were just very open uh, mm-hmm. in a way that, whereas I found sometimes the, when I did seven, you know, on a couple of pieces, and some of the brass players were sort of, you know, would read, basically reading the, the paper in the middle of takes and stuff, you know, while they, and then put it down and, and then go back. You know, <laughs> I had that lack of attention. Mm. I didn't like, uh, you know, I understand it really. And then I worked with the Bournemouth Symphony Orchestra when I did the, the piece, the mm-hmm. prelude when I did it, right. the thing. And I mean, they, you know, fine, but it was, again, not the same. You know, there's a quite a complicated flute part in the middle. Sure, so I said okay. to them, look, this is tough. You're yeah. going to have to rehearse this. You can't, you won't play it sight reading, yeah. you know. And we actually, we, to make it slightly easier for them, we split it between two flutes. And when it came to the performance, they just they didn't do anything. I mean, they just couldn't play it. Right. And that really annoyed me, you know. Sure. And we'd done rehearsals and stuff, and I just thought this is this is not right. Whereas when we did the in Prague, the flute player, I mean, I, you know, she said we said this is quite tricky. Just makes a new note, you practice a little bit. First take, fantastic, <laughs> and she got a you know because we we're doing the thing separately like mm. this. Applause from the rest of the the, the, the right. um right. the woodwind players because it's not an easy thing to play. It's easy sure. to play on a keyboard, and I was doing you know fingers like this and stuff mm-hmm. like this. It's not yes. much good on radio. Well. <laughs> uh, alternating the two fingers so you can play twice as fast. And right, and uh, and it was so I, I love that really, and I just think the standard of players is, is great on yeah. in England as well. And don't get me wrong, but it's just it was lovely to have have these players. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you for your time for coming out. To, uh, I say coming out here, but this is really your place. This is actually place. easier for me. Yes. You're, you're doing more coming out than me. I don't know. If, uh, I hope you haven't come all the way from America. No, not, not just for this. This not is just vacation not here. Just for this. Not what? Well. Okay, yeah. it was just for this. Just yeah. for you, I came anyway, over. Anyway, I've only had to come two or three miles down the road. Yes. So it's so. a lot easier for me. But no, it's great. Good to yes. talk. And, and it, uh, we appreciate it. And just know that there are people out there who really appreciate the solo no, music you do. I do understand yeah. that. That's why I, it's great to have, you know, I do have. You know, I, I seem to get a great response from from people, which is really nice. You know, it's just uh, it's just a different different mode of thinking mm-hmm. to uh, to Invisible Touch, if you know what I mean. It is so, but that's the great thing about it. There is a huge diversity of music within this world. Well, you're absolutely so. right. I mean, you know, yes. when we did We Can't Dance, it almost seemed too easy in a way. <laughs> you know, right? Um, it got a little more difficult after that, obviously. But it sure. was, uh, you know, well, that we had a golden period, really, but yeah. from the. 70s and 80s and it was uh, you know wouldn't give up that for anything really well again thank you very much Tony appreciate you coming out here thanks a lot
So there you have it, the Tabletop Genesis interview with Tony Banks. Uh, again, we have to thank tremendously both Tony for agreeing to do the interview, and which he did on a beautiful June Friday, which was a great day, and you know he sacrificed some of his time for that. And also, again, thanks to Joe Greenwood for setting this up. So any reflections from the Tabletop? I really liked how, um, how much you two talked about his orchestral work because mm. that's one aspect of his solo career mm-hmm. that I'm really interested in but not haven't like kind of gotten into that as mm-hmm. much in terms of the context around it you know the the starting was seven and going now down to five and that whole you know journey he's been on with mm-hmm. with this so you know I really I liked hearing you talk in a little detail about that right. so that was good and you know I feel like I feel like now he has some closure on it did you get that sense that like he's going to pursue this a little bit more or yeah, he's I was surprised when he said that he hadn't written anything since completing yeah. the material for five that really surprised me so I do think that he viewed it as okay, this I can kind of put to bed now, this piece of th- piece of work, mm-hmm. um, this working in the orchestral world. I mean, I think that if Five were to go on to sell a million copies, maybe he'd think, oh, maybe I can do more of this, or there's, a, there's people out there listening to it. But again, orchestral work is not something that's burning up the airwaves either, so I think there's... Oh, you haven't been going to the clubs I've been going to. I know, I know. But he's had a level of success with that that in some ways he never had with his rock albums. So he got decent reviews and things have sold decently. So I think that he's happy with having been able to do that. Okay. I mean, that's what I got. I mean, playing off of Stacey's kind of closure feeling, I kind Mm -hmm. of got the feeling that he's has a sense of peace and contentment with the work of his yes. career whereas if you go back to some of his interviews like in a history mm-hmm. another thing where it definitely comes across or maybe not intentionally but a little bitter at not having had some of the success mm-hmm. you know I, I remember there's that one time when he kind of has like that little sneer he's like you know people may not have even heard of it let alone heard of it and he like mm-hmm. he seems kind of right a little bit of you know it's kind of weight weighs on him but the interview that you know we just listened to he seems very happy with mm-hmm. the output that Genesis did and the opportunity that it gave him to do things he wanted to do, like the orchestral stuff. Exactly. And he looks back on it, and I think he, he doesn't have that kind of air about him where he's, you know, oh, I should have, this should have been more popular or whatever. You're like, it is what it is. He's mm-hmm. had some great moments, and I think he's really recognizing that now. It's pretty obvious that he holds himself to a very high standard. Yes. Right. Yeah, I think it's almost like Genesis did this well, so I should have done better with my solo career. And and I think he, he even said that, he's like, I can't complain about having the career that I've had. You know, I've had this great success with Genesis and have been able to do that. And yeah, I think there's always that kind of, oh, I wish this could have been better, better received or better, more heard, you know. But that's, that's... I think he says, you know, that's where I'm at right now. So what are you going to complain about? You the know? important thing is he did it and yeah. it's going to live forever. Right. So. And I, even, I think I said, I said, well, you know, there yeah. are a lot of people who really like this music yeah. that you've done. And he's like, I know. Discovering you know, it new all the time. Yeah. You know? and, and there are people who, you know, we were able to fill an hour interview talking to him about this. So I think that's. 
I like that he was very passionate about these albums. Obviously, he, especially with the last three orchestral mm-hmm. albums, he has very differing views, but he was very engaged with all three of these, these mm-hmm. albums. And they, unto themselves, it, it, it makes up a trilogy of, of work, which is a very distinct body of work from anything any of the members of the, uh, the mm-hmm. band have done solo really right. at the end of the day so in that respect even in that one thing on its own mm-hmm. it's a remarkable body of work yeah. and I think if you haven't already explored 765 the feeling I got from it was that if you were going to start with ones and maybe if you only wanted to get into one it would be to start with five because from what he said and what you had said from your listenings to it it's the one that sounds more like his personality right and it's kind of got like if you're looking for a progish type of song, you have the first one, which is 15 minutes, and right. it's a prelude to um, prelude to a million years. Yes, I mean you can't get more, as he said, pretentious than that. Right, <laughs> uh, and that's kind of good. Like it, I, it makes me want to go and explore this, especially now that he was able to do a track by track kind of right. rundown of what led him to write the different pieces and the different styles, and how he was a lot happier with this album than Six, which had the arranger, which might not have mm-hmm. met his original. Which I really liked Six also, which Six feels more like Tony Banks than Seven does. Seven, which while I liked pieces of it, he even said it sounds, you know, he, he said it, it, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but for me, listening to Seven, it was a bit more generically orchestral. There are flashes of Tony Banks in there, whereas I think even the opening number on Six, I was like, this is Tony Banks writing this. Well, you're still entitled to your opinion, aren't you? Right, oh yeah, definitely. <laughs> well, I wanted to make sure I wasn't putting it out as he said this to me, and I was like, oh no, I, I don't want to put words in his mouth that way. But it was, I think that Five is the best of them, and I, I actually listened to this album a lot going into this interview because I knew that we would talk about it for a good chunk of time. And it's one thing to talk about albums like Selling England or Lamb Lies Down or Invisible Touch or whatever that you've heard for the past 30 years. It's it's another thing for a relatively new album that doesn't have words, that's more about melody and arrangement, to be able to talk intelligently about that. Yeah. It's like, it, again, I don't want to be like, that's a really good tune, you know, <laughs> and just leave it at that. It's like, oh, you know, this piece of this or that part of this track was flowed nicely into the, into the other pieces. I think so. if there was one thing I would l- wish you uh, <laughs> to have asked him, sure. which is um, if he'd have carried on with this series and it would have reached zero, wouldn't mm-hmm. music explode? Right, yeah. exactly. <laughs> yeah, would he just song. put out a blank CD <laughs> yeah. and say, this is my John Cage 433, this is my, my epic here. So I, I, I have to say that um, it was really fascinating to hear how he approached... Uh, a lot of the music, especially when it came to lyric writing, which right. is something I've never really heard him speak at any kind of length right. about. Yeah, that was something that I've asked, we asked Steve about that, we asked Ann Phillips about it. It's one of those areas that I'm just interested in because we think of these guys sometimes as the guitar player, the keyboard player, or the writer, Yeah, and don't necessarily ask about lyrics in particular because that is... A piece of that, like I said, I asked. It's an important piece of the narrative, exactly. And and I did kind of ask about the competitive nature of it that he kind of dismissed, which again, I I I wonder if that's more with hindsight or when they were all the eighteen and twenty years old, if there was a bit of competitive 
competitiveness to it. If it's so. going to be something like that, I would suspect that it's one of those ones which is a positive competitive yes. edge in the same right. way that Lennon and McCartney would yes. sort of like do that and they would egg each other on to, uh, right. to greater heights. Right. right, like they wouldn't say, you know, they might both come at something with like a, a, good, a good idea, but I think one person would recognize if one idea was better than the other that they right. should go with that even if it wasn't their idea. Sure. So like they were all building something towards a greater good and and genesis was you know all kind of kind of minor quibbles aside a meritocracy it was what's the best idea and you know i thought it was interesting that tony basically said that shepherd was the first complete lyric that he had he he kind of i think quickly said that maybe there were some things he and ant did together on from genesis to revelation but Again, Tony also talks kind of quickly, so sometimes those things go by, and I'm like, did he just say that, or is that something else? In the moment of interviewing Tony Banks is a very interesting experience, because there are things that fly by, and you're like, oh, I should reference back to that, and then two other things come up that are interesting that I'm like, oh, I, we could just talk about these three things for 20 minutes, let alone, you know, trying to get into other albums and all that, so. And I liked how he talked about writing for these, uh, and I've the John Potter, uh, I think it's John Potts. Potts. I'm sorry. So I we can edit that out. The um, no, no. I know we'll leave it in there. <laughs> we we even on the tabletop make mistakes. So, but the talking about writing music to pre-existing lyrics, where he's like, oh, this is easy. I can do this. You know, this is what Elton John did his entire career. <laughs> this is like I just thought he really seemed like almost surprised for him how easy that was. Yeah. And, he, and it sounded like, like uh, Stacy, were talking about, is this kind of, like, kind of the end stage of things. But he did seem to be, like, responsive to if there's something interesting that can go on, he would be responsive to that. Mm-hmm. But he's not hungering to do the next project, I don't think. Like we talked a bit about, you know, if you were to record a really good rock song that you had an idea for, you could probably just put that out online and, you know, just kind of put it out into the world. Because there's not... the capacity to do that. Yeah, right? there's, it's, it's easier to do that rather than ramp up and do a full album when you really might only be excited about three tracks or whatever. So you can just kind of do that piece of it. So I think that, I don't, I think we will see something else from Tony at some point in the future, but who knows what it'll be. So, and that's a very vague prediction, so... I'll leave it at that. Well, we, we also give you a prop to bring up the This Is Love video. Mm-hmm. Which, which if you haven't seen it, please YouTube it. Maybe it's we can a, link to it on the website or on Facebook. So. I, think, I think the moment, the, the, uh, the pivotal moment was when he is in the car driving a keyboard on the dash, playing its keyboard. <laughs> and remember, dash. folks, never play keyboards and drive. Yes, it's very dangerous. I know, I know sometimes say, someone will say, well, just one more song for the road. <laughs> yes. it's one but that, is, that would just be a chord too far. Yeah. Oh. It's one of Stacey's pinnacle Tony Banks solo moments, oh, I think, absolutely. that video. So. It's on my running playlist. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good song. It's good. It's got a good beat. But talk about somebody who does not look like they want to be oh, in yeah. a video. That is that video on Tony Banks. So, but this is one of the things. Yes, this is one of the things I always like about uh, about Tony as a person. He does come across as being uh, a very uh, inflexible person (laughs) at times, and and like it's his way or the highway. But he does loads of things just to say, "Well, I've not done this before. Let's give it a go." Right. 
Yeah. Th that was something I, I observed in the interview, too, which I thought was really interesting. Like, he does, you know, when he was describing, particularly working on the orchestral stuff, he's so mm -hmm. prescriptive. Mm -hmm. Like, play it like this. It reminded yes. me of when we would hear Phil Collins talk about writing the horn parts for the Phoenix horns. Right. He would just sing it and say, you need to play whatever I'm yes. singing. And I think maybe Tony, yeah. you know, I kind of interpret it as that he has that kind of approach. Well, Phil, okay. Phil had the line of, leave your ideas at the door. Right. He's like, because it's my ideas that are on here for his solo work. Right. Yeah. So the, what I was getting to was yeah. that, so he was, he's very prescriptive. He has a vision. He wants to see it through. But I love, like, it came through in the interview times. He's just kind of like, you know, but it is what it is, and mm -hmm. we'll see what happens. He had mm -hmm. that also feeling about it, particularly after it was released. Right. Um, which I found very interesting. Like, I think he does, has a healthy balance of, right. of both. Um, well, Tony was best in a group setting yeah. in some ways because other people, whether it was Peter or Phil, could kind of take that main promotional piece mm -hmm. and really be out there advocating for the band. And mm -hmm. Tony certainly did his part with Genesis, but when you're a solo act, you have to do that 100% yourself. Mm -hmm. And that did that kind of mesh well with Tony's personality? Mm, maybe, maybe not. So... And that could be, you know, part of the reason why he wasn't as radio friendly as even as, you know, as an interview as Phil is or as Mike Rutherford is or as Peter Gabriel's. With every member of the band and especially Tony Banks, it, it's all it's always about the music. And that's all, you know, that's all you should have. Right. And that's, you know, that's frankly all I care about. Mm -hmm. But I know, you know, to, for him to reach a larger audience, it can't just be that. Right. And so it's unfortunate, but, you know, that's the way it kind of works now. It's how music's evolved. Well, and, and as you said also, the music's there now. Mm -hmm. So, and, yeah. you know, this is the type of thing where there are people who are really into Tony's solo material. And, you know, I really enjoy it for the most part. I think, again, like any solo career, there's a couple duff tracks in there that I'm like, eh. But... There's a lot of really good stuff there for people to hear, especially, I think, for the rock listeners to hear this orchestral music by somebody who you like in a rock context. You can kind of listen to it, listen to the orchestral music as if it's a rock arrangement. I have a and question about a, the yeah. orchestral stuff, which is, is, was any of it ever performed live? No. Actually, uh, that's incorrect. <laughs> the Prelude to a Million Years was the piece that he wrote for this festival in England that was played a couple years ago. Yeah. So... Uh, he wasn't thrilled with the performance. I think they did a decent job with it, but it's one of those things where I think it it did really inspire him to say, let's record the orchestra like a rock band now. Yeah. We record the woodwinds all together. We record the rhythm together. We record the violins all together. The reason why I, I asked that, and this is I'm skirting mm. around really what is my, my real question, which mm. is just even if it was just one night of mm. Tony Banks in one venue, here are my songs, yeah. that would have been awesome yeah. i mean i you know i know that sounds uh it's all pie in the sky but just sure. to have heard him play those songs live i would have loved yeah. that you know even if he did a mix of the orchestral stuff and then maybe just orchestral versions thrown in the mix of one for the vine or mad mm. man moon just kind in the of same like, way that peter gabriel did with his solo right. stuff yeah 
Well, Peter Gabriel already did it, so. <laughs> no, but I would, I would have quite happily, I would have quite happily yeah. sort of sat down and just yeah. listened to a rock band playing sure. his, his oh, stuff, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And I know that there was that tribute night that they. Yes, did. back in the nineties, yeah. I think, or early two thousand. Strictly Banks. Yeah. Strictly, Strictly Banks. Banks. It was like one night kind yeah. of thing. So. And I suspect that's probably the only live. Yeah. For a lot of bank-centric thing yeah. that the, that's ever yeah. been done. There's not a lot of. I was going to say there's not a lot of cover versions of Tony Banks material. I would reckon say I don't think I've ever heard a cover band do one of Tony's uh, solo tracks. Well, yeah. uh, any musicians out there? There's a gap in the market. Yeah. We're yeah. going to have our tabletop Genesis band is going to be starting up, and we'll we'll do these performances. Our, our Banks night. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so. I just have two things. Sure. Two other observations. One, um, I think Genesis could definitely kick you two's ass. Yes. Yes. Tony. We all know that. that. I mean, let's just, you know, I just had to say it. (laughs) And I absolutely love, (laughs) I love that Tony strives to put together a Genesis set list that will deliver multiple orgasms. Yes. (laughs) I appreciate that, Mr. Banks. Thank you very much. And and believe me, you've delivered. (laughs) As we hope this podcast does for you listeners gives you multiple exactly yes on that note <laughs> relax have uh, a yes, cigarette exactly <laughs> listen to the interview again if you need to because we do provide multiple copies to you um <laughs> and this is mike lord this is simon this is stacy and this is tom thank you all again thank you to tony thank you to joe greenwood again thank you very much and thank you all for listening Thank you for listening to this episode of Tabletop Genesis. Archived episodes can be found at tabletopgenesis.com, along with updates, polls, and various other podcast-related news. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes to have the shows automatically and magically downloaded to your computer when we post new episodes. To keep up with all the Tabletop Genesis activity, follow us on Twitter at Genesis Tabletop. You can like us on Facebook by searching for Tabletop Genesis. And you can also email us directly at genesistabletop at gmail.com. Let us know what you think of the podcast or send us questions we can address on future episodes. Oh,